firewalls suck. Wait, what? Well, on today's Data Knots, we are going to talk about what a security infrastructure looks like without firewalls. Eh, sort of. I mean, it's complicated. Yes, seriously, that's what we're getting into. And by the end of the show, you'll be running into the data center and unplugging your firewall cables. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can join a thousand others by joining us on Twitter at datanauts underscore show. And I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. With me is the fabulous Drew Conray Murray at Drew underscore CM, who went into a blind rage at his local Best Buy and threw every firewall they were selling right out the front window in preparation for the show. It was the most metal thing I have ever seen in my life. Chris Wall, he will be back next week as his busy travel schedule permits. And joining us today to talk about security without a firewall, John Ziola, CTO of CISO, and Nick Baraglio, who calls himself the lead face melter over at the Energy Sciences Network. John and Nick, welcome to the show. And, uh, and Nick, just to kick things off, I want to level set and understand for the purposes of this conversation today, what do we mean by firewall? Well, let me tell you what we mean by firewall. And the definition that I like to use for a firewall, it's essentially a device that sits in the network path that does stateful packet inspection and possibly some other things, you know, like a UTM type appliance, unified threat management that will potentially take action based on specific patterns or other policies that are set up. Okay. So in this application, then we're really getting at the firewall as middle box where it's in path and doing things, filtering or inspection, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And for the premises of this conversation, we're talking about a a firewall at the border, at the DMZ of your network. Well, I mean, really it can exist anywhere, right? So depending on your network architecture, it's just a security appliance, or I like to call them an impediment that sits in the path between the data you want to move and the place you want to move it to. It doesn't necessarily have to be at the border, but that's more than likely where it is in most apologies. Okay. So if today's show is about maybe getting rid of the firewall, isn't, you know, monitoring state, which is a core firewall value proposition. It's been that way for a long time. That's kind of a really big deal, right? Or have concerns about statefulness sort of gone by the wayside because attacks are sort of moving up the stack. Well, at least from my perspective, and John, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this subject as well. But from my perspective, the state of the firewall is a risk, right? Because one of the easiest things to do to denial of service a small pipe is to run the state table out of a, an appliance. And it's really not that difficult to accomplish. So mm-hmm. monitoring the state is something that typical firewall vendors will say to an enterprise, oh, you need to be able to monitor the state of all your network or all your network traffic based on this. You know, you can see all this in your firewall. And that to me is a hand wavy answer to what happens if I run the state out in this particular appliance. Now, there are lots of other ways to look at pseudo state, like collecting flow data and other stuff that gives you a snapshot of the the network traffic at, uh, over time. But I'd, I'd be curious to see what, what John thinks about that particular question as well. Yeah, and actually a lot of the times when I'm spinning up a vulnerability scanning program at a customer, that's one of the first things to have an issue, right? You uh, run a vulnerability scan through a firewall and it fills up the state table and you create your own denial of service. And then uh, things don't go really well from there on. <laughs> from there on out, the people start to uh, shy away from doing vulnerability scanning and things like that. And 
in addition, you know, the more that you try to do, the more that you try to shove into your firewalls, the more concerning it can get from a security perspective. A lot of vulnerabilities come out, the more complex your code is, the more lines there are, the more bugs there are. In addition, whenever firewalls try to do layer seven uh, application monitoring and things like that, that also just opens the door to different types of bypasses and exploits that can be done against the firewall itself. So it, it does to some degree, although I don't say that it would always be a problem. And in, in ca- uh, some cases where you have you know, legal requirements, you might actually have to have a firewall or a really good compensating control to do it a different way. Okay. But so in that context, what, what are we really saying here? Can we say that firewalls are offering us a, a false sense of security and we should be really rethinking how and where firewalls fit into our network architectures? So I think that firewalls definitely can give a false sense of security. They can also just be a part of a bigger picture, right? So uh, whenever you're trying to build a security program, you want to have defense in depth and as many different things as you want. Also, whenever we talk about firewalls, they don't have to be network-based firewalls. You know, endpoint firewalls are uh, really important as well. So making sure that you're attacking this from every end of the spectrum, monitoring traffic, having defense in depth uh, is really important to have a good security program. And if you only have a firewall and that's really the basis of your entire security program, then yes, I would think that you kind of probably do have a false sense of security. Yeah, and I I definitely agree with that, that it, it can potentially provide a false sense of safety that's not necessarily as comfortable as folks would like it to be. And it also, over the years however long stateful firewalls have been around, which, you know, what, 25 years when the, when the picks came out in what, like 95 or something, you know, you've got this additional misconception that a lot of enterprises have that, well, I'm going to use this firewall device and it does address translation for me. Nine out of 10 enterprises and a lot of, actually a lot of networks in general, because they don't have a lot of IPv4 space available to them, they use address translation. At some point in the course of technological history, that became translated into a security mechanism, and that is not at all what it is. And I think that's a huge, huge misunderstanding that's been perpetuated by the you know, traditional firewall vendors over a very long period of time. So whether or not a firewall is giving me a false sense of security, in some cases, I'm thinking particularly in enterprise I might have to have one to be compliant with particular regulations. And I'm thinking specifically of PCI DSS. Yeah, that's true. I mean, running firewall free is not for everybody, obviously, right? I mean, you're taking the things that it typically does and you're extrapolating it out and doing them in different ways. But there are, you know, it's even more than PCI. You know, there are government regulations and other required policies that just part of the mechanism that you have to accomplish to get the certification or the uh, compliance that you need is a packet filtering device of some kind. Mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be a traditional firewall. And specifically in the case of PCI DSS, I think that that is highly interpretable by whoever is doing your audit. <laughs> right. <laughs> As is most of PCI DSS. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, exactly. But, you know, they definitely have a place, right? But I think that at least for me, it's important to be able to point out the fact that just because your vendor says you need this doesn't mean you actually need it. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, firewalls should really be, especially network-based firewalls, should be treated as a tool in the toolbox. And although that you you do have to or you should comply with regulations whenever they apply to you in different scenarios, really what you should be trying to do is have the most secure posture as you can. And, you know, the way that you do that will vary from environment to environment. Maybe you use network-based firewalls in some cases to protect just, you know, your uh, cardholder data environment. 
your CDE and maybe not at the edge, for instance, you know, and there's different ways that you can approach that problem without having to do a network-based firewall. Yeah, the, the security architect I used to work with had a he, he made a point one day on a on a meeting that has stuck with me and it's we're going past a decade now. I've never forgotten it. He said just because you're compliant with PCI doesn't mean you're secure. And I was mm-hmm. just just like, "Yep, that's as soon as that hit me, like, whoa, that is the truth." Okay, moving the conversation along. Now, really every environment that I've worked in, a lot of enterprises, some kind of SP-like environments, we've had big firewalls at the border, at the edges, because here be dragons is what's beyond, Nick, as you said in one of your presentations I watched prepping for this show. A big border firewall, it's just the way things have been done and kind of a standard part of vendor reference architectures. You look at a, like a Cisco validated design where they got fireballs in there and, you know, hey, buy our firewalls. But in what cases does a big border firewall not make sense? People really going to be struggling with this point. So I think there's a deeper thing here, and you actually said it. The vendor validated design, right? It would behoove them to put all of their expensive gear in the design that they are then validating, right? And I'm not saying that that's, you know, that everybody does that or whatever, and there aren't places for these things. But just because that's the way that the vendor says to do it, doesn't necessarily mean it's the best or only way, right? And I think that there are many other ways to deal with some of the same things that the firewall or security appliance will will allow you to do. And that's gotten easier over time. But I think what the vendor validated designs provide you is here is a turnkey solution. And a lot of enterprises just want that. They don't care about performance or other things. You know, they want this thing that's provided by a vendor that then gives them a throat that they can choke if there's problems with it and then they can pay support on it and it's well understood by you know the folks that they've hired to run it or they hire the vendor to run it or a VAR or whatever. I do agree that in most enterprises, that's just the way it's always been done. Now, service providers, I see that. That's actually where I got the start of this was like I took over a service provider like 20 years ago and, and rebuilt it and having to do that and still ensure that, you know, as I was doing that, I was finding all kinds of like rooted Linux systems and Solaris boxes. And, you know, it was just like, okay, how do I, how do I deal with this? I can't just put a firewall in front of a handful of DS3s. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And it really comes down to understanding, I think your network and the threats that you have against the assets, what you're protecting. Uh, at a company I used to work at, we would jokingly refer to our Wi-Fi network as chaos net because, you know, just about anybody could join it. Uh, and whenever you did, you went right on the internet, no firewall blocking, and who knows what kind of compromises were happening there. Someone could have put a proxy out there, and anybody on the internet could look like they're coming from that network. It was an absolute mess. And there's a lot of different ways to approach this problem. It doesn't actually have to be a firewall, but there are you know, different network-based approaches to secure yourself as well as your endpoint and things like that. It sounds like you guys are saying that a case can be made that maybe with a bit of re-architecting and rethinking your security posture, you could get rid of a border firewall. I'm saying that, and I'm also saying it's not even really that hard to make the case. Yeah, and in some cases, I almost would recommend getting rid of a border firewall to alleviate some pressure uh, and some things that might slow down the progress of security. Absolutely. But 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 defense in depth. You can't do defense <laughs> in depth without a firewall, guys. Are you sure? <laughs> How would you respond to that? I mean, you know that's a question that's going to come up in people's minds. I would just point them at that YouTube video that I did that you watched, the, the talk I gave at Brocon. That basically lays out everything you need to do to have defense in depth without a firewall. Yeah, the point being, there are a lot of things you can do to create a defense in depth security architecture that doesn't necessarily involve a big border firewall like everybody thinks you have to have. 
So my takeaway from this first session is that it's a good reminder that firewalls represent their own attack surface. And presumably if it's at the border of the network where malicious actors are knocking, you've got to balance the risk of having that device there against, you know, the kind of risk management benefits that you might be getting from it. Yeah. The thing that stuck out to me was just remembering the whole vendor validated design and so on. And in fairness, vendor validation has, or at least it might have ulterior motives. And so the reality of what you actually need in your network environment could be somewhat different from that validated design. In other words, you might be buying things you don't have to buy, just all depending on how your business operates and what your requirements are. Something to keep in mind uh, just because the vendor puts the piece of paper in front of you and says, this is what we support. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you have to buy. All right. So just to be very clear then, so we're saying that, yes, you can go with a firewall. You can re-architect your security so that you don't need it. And that doesn't mean screw security. We're still going to be doing what? Can we kind of drill into some of the things that's going to happen? So I think if you take the typical, you know, high-end security UTM or appliance that you would put in front of a network of any size, you can start to pull out the pieces, right? Like what are the functions that this particular appliance or device is going to provide, right? It's going to give me packet filtering, right? I can do that in a non-stateful way for simple things at my border router, right? You don't want to overload, but it's going to do all those things in hardware if you've purchased the right kind of equipment. And you can do inbound filtering and outbound filtering based on ACLs for simple stuff that you know you need to be filtering like SNMP and LPR and stuff like should never be going in and out of your network. Mm -hmm. You just keep pulling the pieces out of it and you figure out what it does and then what are the other ways that you can do those things. Because before big firewalls existed, people still had to do a lot of this stuff. It just wasn't as prevalent. So, okay, we're not firewalling at the border. We're instead going to kind of deconstruct what a firewall does and move that functionality out into the devices that normally we would think of as these are things behind the firewall. And the firewall does all this, but now we've got to take that functionality and move it out there. Therefore, I don't have a middle box. I'm shoving traffic through. One thing that might pop into people's heads is, well, wait a minute. I relied on that middle box, that firewall to do inspection for me. And I could count on traffic getting shoved through this device. As here's a central point I can monitor traffic. So how do I inspect traffic now if I don't have that middle box anymore? Yeah. So there's a lot of different techniques and ways to get the traffic. And you don't really necessarily have to be in line of the network flow in order to do that. I mean, you're not going to get features that a network firewall could do like TCP sequence number, uh, randomization, things like that. But you can really get the core information about what's what's transiting their network out of band. And there's a lot of different architectures that you can use to do this, depending on the architecture of the actual network backbone and things like that. You can use a, a tap infrastructure, so you can actually, you know, essentially use prisms and split the light of different fiber and send them to different network packet broker appliances. You know, Arista has a good one if you get their DANS license. Gigamon's really big in that space. And you essentially can bring in you know, a specialized switch. You can bring in network traffic to and then load balance it across a cluster of servers that are out of band to parse network traffic, to identify different protocols, summarize it into good logs, good information, identify issues, and then even you know write alerts, send alerts to different people or write events to a log that you could then monitor and analyze afterwards. Well, John, how would you respond to people who say, well, yeah, but off to the side, you know, monitoring out of band is different than monitoring in line. So if I had that middle box that could 
identify a threat and then drop traffic immediately, isn't that better than having something that's off to the side that kind of is reacting somewhat later and traffic still getting through? Isn't isn't my security posture worse uh, unless I'm doing it in line? So I'm not sure that I would call it worse, but I would definitely call it different. So whenever you're not doing it in line, yes, there is definitely going to be some sort of a delay. There's other ways you can essentially script responses, have automated responses to drop traffic. You could send TCP resets. You can put border blocks in. You can you know do different sorts of catches and release. And to be honest, a lot of those inline appliances don't exactly do all that you expect them to either. A couple of years ago, I did a pretty comprehensive network IDS IPS evaluation. And a lot of them, if you wanted to provide all of the context that you have about your network, couldn't actually do it at line speed. So you were kind of letting the, the traffic through regardless. <laughs> Yes, the ugly truth. Yes. <laughs> so so two, two things there, uh, two points that are really important. If you need performance, like greater than 10 gig flows or even up to 10 gig flows, you know, but if you're pushing traffic across 40 or 100 gig interfaces and you try to put a device in the middle between those two things that you're expecting to operate at line rate and do ex- inspection, you're going to have a bad day because it's not going to be able to do that. There are very, very few exceptions that even come close to that. And they're carrier grade, you know, sitting in the middle of Verizon Wireless is network type Million gear. dollar boxes. Yeah, yeah, or more, or more. And that's okay. If you can afford those, by all means, grab them up, right? They work. I've worked on them. And the other thing is that John touched on is that there's other mechanisms to do that. The biggest argument that I ever hear against an open perimeter security posture is I need something to do like IPS functionality, right? Intrusion prevention mechanisms that are going to detect the traffic because it's passing through the box and they're going to act on it immediately, right? Where immediately is, I'm air quoting here, you can't see it, but you know, it's pretty quick. I'll give it that. But there are a bunch of other ways that you can get around that by doing things like real-time black hole routing based on event data that uh, your, you know, whatever your analyzer is, is seeing. And you could push flow spec rules out to do uh, BGP flow spec filtering across a huge number of devices, thereby filtering not just on the one device that happens to be sitting in the path, but maybe, I don't know, every router in your network could receive that firewall filter via via flow spec message. I mean, there are pretty serious advantages to doing that. And assuming that, you know, the, that a lot of people do that you can't perform those functions without a, a inline appliance in between is, uh, is just, a, it's not correct. Now, is it a little bit more work operationally? Yeah. I mean, probably a little bit more setup time, but once it works and it's tuned, it'll just keep doing what it needs to do. And just like any other security appliance, you can't just set it and forget it, right? You're not going to put a firewall in there, turn your policies up and say, I'm never touching this again, right? If you do, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so if we're considering moving away from the firewall, do I maybe want to back that up by going with something like an IDS, an intrusion detection system, to have that in the network? So there's a bunch of different options for this. And, and you know, I'm a little bit out of the loop when it comes to some of these things. And John is down in the trenches with that. So he could probably give you a lot more details about things like the Bro IDS or Suricata or some of the other options that are available. But I think the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that was a bit of a red flag there whenever you called it the Bro IDS, because I don't think the Bro team has coded that for many years. And in fact, they get a little <laughs> bit offended if you don't call it the Bro NSM anymore, uh, because they've kind of, they feel like they've transferred away from an intrusion detection system and more network security monitoring 
Uh, but the broker platform is really great. I can't say enough about how great it is. The core concept is that it sits out of band. You shovel it a lot of traffic. It parses things in different protocols, writes those in the log files. So you can go back and you essentially get really good telemetry, good uh, network forensics information that you can go back and see what was happening on your network at a specific time, You know what an IP was doing, what a Mac address was doing, what was happening in a VLAN. You know, all of that, that sort of context is in the in the, the bro logs. Uh, and there's a really cool scripting language around it too, where you can customize what it does in response. You know, if I see these sort of TCP headers, then, you know, take this sort of response. You know, you, you can do anything really. You can arbitrarily run commands on a system. So at the university that I used to work at, we wrote a, whole, a library of Python scripts. And whenever we saw things that we indicated were bad, we used bro scripts to essentially notice or identify that that was happening and then run a Python script, which interfaced with a, an API that we also built in-house and that added uh, remote trigger black holes essentially to the edge of our network to block that. So idea. John, the, the, the bro script that you wrote was used to identify a behavior and then the Python script was to react to that behavior that was detected? Right, exactly. So you could say something like, you know, if, and this is a very uh, contrived example, but, uh, you know, if this connection went for two minutes, but transferred more than 100 gigs of traffic, and, you know, it came from this list of IPs that I know, uh, I no longer trust that. So run this arbitrary script and pass it these parameters, which one of them is the source IP. And then that Python script would then reach out to the other system and say, hey, there's this, this source IP, we want to execute this sort of workflow, which means, you know, block it at the border or block it at these different layers. You know, maybe it's different. Maybe it's the, you know, we want to stop the destination or we don't want to block it. We want to quarantine it. You know, all of those sorts of things you can you can orchestrate with these sorts of systems in response. You know, send out a DHCP NAC and force the system that you're trying to kick off the network to re-DHCP. And since you have control over your DHCP servers, put it in a quarantine network, for instance. So you're saying there's still the opportunity if you need to take some form of automated response, you can script these or code these themselves based on criteria you set up. I would say that you have more opportunity to do that just by nature of the fact that you're not going to be limited by whatever the appliance is that you've purchased capabilities. Yeah, I think that's a key part of this. Like this is open source, right? So anybody can contribute, anybody can write to these. And they tried to build a platform where you can build on top of it. So, um, you know, there are various different concepts within Bro, but, you know, you don't have to know C to be able to write it yourself. There's some ease ab abstraction layers to be able to parse your own protocols even and be able to extract your own fields and your own identifiers, you know, key information from that protocol. So we were criticizing the a firewall not being able to go at 10 gig or 40 gig or whatever, unless it was a huge box. But do we end up with a similar kind of bottleneck with Bro or is there some capability that we can scale it? Maybe, you know, do we split up conversations and, and spread the inspection out over several different boxes or how do we do that? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, one, uh, a typical architecture you might see is, you know, the network traffic is monitored. It comes in via span, tap port mirror or whatever goes to a, a packet broker then that distribute it takes a, a hash a symmetric hash of the five tuple and then sends that one stream of information always to the same box and you might have a cluster of five or six different machines then once it hits those machines it has you know one nick or even possibly multiple nicks and you can use different load balancing techniques on that machine itself to split it again across multiple threads to process it and so it scales really high there are some definite upper bounds to uh, bro nsm i think they usually don't recommend at this point to have more than like 130 different worker threads 120 different worker threads at once that's a general rule of thumb but it, it scales fairly high and there are some white papers on how to monitor 100 gigabit traffic with bro and there's also nothing stopping you from having multiple bro clusters because you are out of band you can split that up and split it up as many times as you want across different clusters. 
The traditional knock against an IDS, though, is that they can be very noisy, they can be hard to tune, they're always throwing alerts, they might be generating false positives. So if I'm you know, sort of moving away from the firewall and relying more on the IDS, how do I address those concerns? Yeah, so you definitely have to operationalize the entire lifecycle, including tuning your IDS with a tool, something more signature-based like a Snort or a Suricata. You know, there are various different tools like pulled pork in order to automatically update the signature. So, you know, one day that signature might not have been used to monitor traffic, but a new zero day came out or some sort of attack. And, you know, you automatically you run pulled pork every day in a cron or something like that. It pulls down that new signature. And, yeah, you're going to have a new signature pop up in your IDS console that you've never seen before. And you have to have a way to be able to go back and say, you know, yes, this is this is a true positive. This is a false positive. Tweak the signature, customize it for your environment or even just just assess the risk to you as a person. Oh, I don't care about this exploit because it it's for systems that I that I don't manage or you know it doesn't hold sensitive information so put that as a lower priority but oh these are my known systems in my PCI environment if anyone attempts or successfully exploits it with these sets of signatures identified by those sets of signatures you know high severity so another thing that you pointed out there is that you're grabbing the new signatures and you're and doing things like that and applying them and you know how that relates to how your day-to-day management of the ecosystem works it's really not terribly different from running a traditional UTM in line, right? Say you've got, you know, whatever it is you purchased, it's going to go out, you're going to pay a subscription. That subscription is going to give you access to the vendors vetted in theory signature base that are then automatically pulled down or manually pulled down, depending on how you configure it. And then you have to go in and do approvals of things. If you're doing your due diligence, it's really not different from that other than the mechanism is a little different and it's not a box in line, right? You still need to pay attention mm-hmm. to new threats. You still need to go in and make sure that your rule sets and your policies are tuned based on the events of the day. It's not really any different than running an appliance because you should be doing those things with an appliance as well. You guys mentioned Suricata. It's come up a few times and then Snort. Are those different from Bro NSM where I'd be running both of them? Or I kind of lump them all in my brain into the IPS pile. They can do kind of both sorts of functionality, IDS and IPS to some degree, but they are very different. They take very different approaches where uh, Suricata and Snort are based off of signatures and Bro NSM is more protocol parsing based and the scripting language. So you would typically, uh, at least in most of the environments where I see them used, you would use them to complement each other and they don't necessarily overlap enough for people not to use them. There used to be a tool back in the day to convert Suricata signatures to Bro, what they called Bro IDS at the time, and they completely deprecated that functionality because it came next to impossible to do because they just kind of think and function a little bit differently. And there are even some really good distributions of network monitoring tools, one called Security Onion, which I really love that Doug Burks does. And it yeah. comes with both, along with a bunch of other tools on it. But it, it comes with both for a reason that they, they, they complement each other very well. Yeah, we did a show with Doug on Security Onion years ago when it was first becoming a distribution that was in prominence. I haven't chatted with him for quite a while, so it's good to hear that, that uh, that's still going on. Okay, so we've been talking about trying to imagine what security looks like without that big firewall that used to do all those things. And we said we're going to we're going to deconstruct that firewall. And one of those functions is higher level inspections. We've been talking about IDS, IPS, Bro, Suricata, Snort have all come up here where we're going to pump traffic into a cluster of these devices and get traffic inspection that way and then be able to react to threats that are detected. There's more to this as we keep going. Host-based security comes to my mind. So you've got IP change, you've got Windows firewall, you've got host intrusion detection that you could run. 
You've got strategies put out by the folks at VMware with NSX. One of the use cases for NSX is microsegmentation, which more or less is is a, a you could interpret that as a host-based security. How does that fit into this no firewall architecture that we're building? I think that's an integral part of the defense in depth strategy. You have to have some mechanisms for you know, controlling access at as close to the resource as possible, which, you know, when I was taught security best practices, which admittedly was quite some time ago, you want to filter as close to the resource as you possibly can. And as you step further out within the network, your filtering becomes less and less granular, right? And that's sort of the the whole concept between the firewall free network is as you get closer to, let's say the host is the resource or the service is the resource in the case of say uh, NSX, you become more granular in your filtering the closer to that that you get. Right. I totally agree. You can get more accurate information closer to the endpoint, but also a key part of it is it distributes the compute load. So you're doing it on all of your endpoints now, as opposed to the one big bottleneck in the middle of your network called the middle box. Oh, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's a great point. So, right, rather than the uh, you know having the, the big monster firewall doing all this stuff and having to make it bigger and bigger to keep up, you effectively are scaling. Every time you put up a new host, well, he's responsible for his own filtering as traffic flows in and out of that host. So you get scaling automatically just through that architecture. Yeah, you get that for free. I've always thought about that and explained that to folks that have asked questions about it as when you're going out on the frozen pond, you don't walk out onto it if you don't know if it's you know, totally frozen, you kind of spread yourself out, inch your way out, like laying down on the ice. That way the load is spread out. You get that for free when you do this. Now it, well, I shouldn't say for free. It does come at an operational cost, right? But very likely in a lot of enterprises, most of these things are probably already happening, right? In some research environments, they may not have had the mechanisms in the past to sort of do this, you know, host-based firewall filtering or whatever. So it might be, there might be a spin-up cost, to accomplish those things. But in, you know, tight enterprise environments, a lot of the stuff's probably already there. Yeah, and I think one last thing to mention about this host-based security is that you can generally divide these sorts of protections into two categories. One is detect and one is prevent, one is protect. You might want something that will actually stop bad things from happening. And another thing, just to sit there and audit and understand what's going on so that when something bad happens, you know, assume breach. Uh, when something bad happens, you can go back and see what happened at least. Although, again, just to play devil's advocate, and, and Nick, you started sort of alluding to this, you know, if my giant border firewall presents an attack service that can be exploited, then if I break those functions up and start putting them on host, then I'm also extending the attack surface there and also creating more operational work for me as an administrator, because every time new definitions come out, all those hosts have to be updated. Every time the host application itself gets an update, that has to be done, et cetera, so forth, creating more logs and so on. So how do I sort of balance this cost about, you know, moving that operational load from a border now to a host? So I think that the the key thing to think about here is that most of this stuff probably exists already, but is not getting the attention it probably should be getting. So the big value add to putting the firewall, you know, the middle box in there is that I can set it, forget it, right? That's a, that's a really common school of thought when in reality, that's never going to be the case. And if it is, then you're missing things. Mm-hmm. So the operational spin up is only there really if you're not already doing it to its fullest potential, right? If you're already doing all of these things and you're diligent about all of them, all you're doing is shifting it a little bit. You're shifting your effort. But from the attack surface perspective, the firewall still presents, you know, the big 
middle box, if you've only got one or say you've got two in HA and you are one of the like four people in the world that can make HA work correctly, <laughs> then you've got one big box that like, it's like taking the engine out of the car. It just doesn't work anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. If you take that thing out, it's, it's a very easy DDoS. I think that also shows how critical defense in depth is as well, right? So, you know, just because you might not be able to patch your endpoint uh, in time, maybe there's some sort of mitigation you can put in at the network layer. You know, maybe you put it at your edge router, maybe you put it at some sort of a, a border appliance, maybe after firewall, maybe not. You know, maybe, you know, you have different layers as you go throughout your network. Maybe you do it in uh, NAC, you know. Who knows? There's lots of different ways to approach this. So it's really important to have those sorts of layers. A great example of that is kind of application vulnerabilities, right? So a lot of times when an application vulnerability comes out, it's difficult to patch it in the application itself. So you spin up, you know, some sort of a role in your WAF to virtually patch or to to protect it while your developers work on actually fixing the root cause, the true problem in the application. Good point. Yeah. Well, so one quick thing I just wanted to touch on real quick here, because it's not always obvious, is that a lot of the things we've been talking about is a philosophical difference, right? So do you want your network to fail open or do you want your network to fail closed in the case of some sort of security event? Which is not a rhetorical question. No, not at all. No, not at all. And it's frankly very much tied into business decisions. Right. So, you know, if your enterprise, you want it to fail closed because you're afraid that the security event may become, uh, it might metastasize elsewhere, then maybe you do want it to fail closed, right? But if you're a service provider, you don't want stuff to fail closed unless there is no other way to handle it, right? Because the network is your product. Right. That is your business. Yeah. All right. So as we continue to kind of unpack this defense in depth, let's spend a few minutes talking about vulnerability scanning, internal and external. Can you guys kind of run down the importance of each and maybe some drawbacks? Knowing your network is key to being able to run it, both from the networking perspective and from the security perspective. If you don't understand what's on it or what levels of code are on it or whatever, but at the high level, if you don't know what's on it and what it's doing, then I would assert that you don't have the right knowledge to run it in the best way possible. So in order to sort of do those things along with, you know, your the data you're collecting, your flow data and your SNMP traffic and the baselines and stuff you're creating being able to understand what the hosts are and what they're doing on your network is really, really important. And if you're going to go firewall free, and even if you're not going to go firewall free, it's really important to have two perspectives. So I want to know what the outside people can see. So I'm going to scan from outside my network and see what's out there, right? With a vulnerability scanning tool like Nessus or whatever the Qualysys or other commercial packages are. And then I also want to be able to see what's going on internally, right? Because that can start causing problems later down the line if the machine or service gets accidentally exposed due to misconfiguration or whatever. I want to understand and patch that before it happens. So having the two different perspectives on vulnerability scanning, I think is really extremely important when it comes to actually doing that in a way that's useful. Right. And it actually contrasts a lot of the other things that we've been talking about earlier because it's active. You're actively going out and trying to identify security issues, whereas most of the other things that we talked about, you know, network IDSs are passive. So, you know, mm-hmm. a good example might be like, how would you know if something was vulnerable if nobody's using it right now and you're only monitoring the network? You would never have any idea that it was vulnerable because you don't see that header, that banner going back and forth with a vulnerable version or you're not seeing some sort of exploit traffic hitting it. I think it's fair to point out that if you're not doing your own vulnerability scanning, someone is. <laughs> That's absolutely and true. And, and they may not be sharing the results with you until it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. 
Okay, so one more step here on defense in depth would be data encryption and confidentiality. In other words, there's obvious stuff like, okay, we're not using Telnet anymore. We're using SSH and so on. But so let's dive a little deeper than those obvious things. Where does data encryption and data confidentiality, which by, by that I interpret to mean, you know, in, integrity also, you know, we're proving sources and so on. A lot of the things that IPsec gives us and SSL, pros and cons of this in our defense and depth strategy? Well, from the perspective of the data, you know, best practices, right? Use your, I mean, if you, <laughs> if it was me saying, I'd say use your brain, right? So don't put passwords in open Amazon cloud storage, right? Stuff like that. Keep your, keep your stuff that's critical, encrypted at rest and encrypted in flight. And, you know, if you're an enterprise, you get into the hairy world of SSL decryption, which I don't necessarily, I'm not going to give my comments on that, but you know, that's something that is a little more difficult, at least in my experience to do without having uh, an inline appliance. Yeah, John, I was you just going to say without a middle box, that's a, yeah. that's a tough one. Yeah. And even with a middle box, it's definitely non-trivial. I, I've done that in the past. I've worked with companies that try to do it at firewalls, try to do it at proxies and uh, it's complicated and it's, it's getting ever more difficult, you know, with the push for end to end encryption and some improvements, even with, you know, if you look at TLS 1.3, it becomes next to impossible to do it as a, a middle box. And so, you know, a lot of, applications say on your phone might even be bringing their own stacks and their own ways of doing, you know, certificate pinning, for instance, or um, HSTS, where you can't strip it if that's the way that you used to do it. You know, there's a lot of things kind of getting in the way. I think it's a good thing. I think that we should be encrypting our data as it goes across and making it more difficult to decrypt. But that's definitely it makes it a little bit more difficult from a protector, someone protecting a network perspective. All right. One final thought. I mean, there's a lot of things we could get into. You know, we could dive more deeply into uh, using BGP, real-time black holing, and flow spec. We just kind of don't have time to get into that today. That that could be a show in and of itself, uh, how to do with that. We could talk about kind of some old school things, setting TCP resets, uh, maybe some like whatever happened to SDN controllers and open flow and, and, and some other stuff like that. But I want to I want to conclude the thinking in this section with one a team oriented question. Now, with middle boxes, you could look at a, a SecOps team and and say, okay, you folks use these firewalls and these are the devices under your care and feeding, and you can kind of operate as an island. But take that middle box out of the equation and begin to spread the security functionality around where we're relying on host-based and we're relying on uh, a well-behaved protocol behavior, like uh, encryption, like we were just talking about. That feels to me like, okay, now we're involving a lot more people where SecOps can't be this island. So am I right in thinking that where now you've got to be more actively engaged with other people in the IT stack to make sure that uh, security is happening as you intend and everyone's got a clear picture of what's going on? Yeah, it's definitely important to focus on communication and working with these different teams and making sure they understand what we're talking about, what sort of issues that could be caused by not doing a protection mechanism and things like that. And speaking in their language, you know, I've been working a lot with developers recently and calling security issues bugs has just gone a, done a great deal to help kind of the way that we approach fixing these security vulnerabilities because developers know how to handle bugs. They've been doing it forever. You log a Jira, you, uh, you tra- uh, track the time that it'll take to fix it, you, uh, and then you remediate it uh, you know, in your next release. And those sorts of things are scaling up and going faster and faster nowadays. But you know, talking to people in their parlance, you know, making sure that they understand these issues and kind of deputizing them to be able to take security seriously and, and handle it from their approaches is really important. 
Yeah, I think there, there are two really important takeaways. One, communication, intergroup communication is more important than almost anything else, regardless of if you're running firewall free or not, right? The days of the security office being this bubble that no one can get into or out of, I think, are over and good riddance. Two, I think that it's not necessarily that running firewall free is a thing that everybody should run out and try to do, right? It definitely has a place. And I think that it's it's not for everyone, but there are absolutely use cases where this is just the only way to do it. And there are they're more common than a lot of people think that that you know that they may be just because we don't see them, right? Because the vendors don't necessarily want you to do that. They want to sell you a big expensive firewall. We were thinking about why you might want to get away from the middlebox approach. Scale was one of those big reasons because middleboxes are scale up. You can make them bigger. Maybe you can cluster them more or less. You're still just scaling up. You're not scaling out like you would with, say, an NFV approach and so on. So thinking about scale and getting the inspection capabilities you need at scale, John mentioned clustering out of band. So you put a, a bro NSM cluster off to the side and you get a lot of scale that way. And then I was reminded that uh, some briefings I've taken recently from visibility fabric vendors like Gigamon, Big Switch, and NetScout, they are in the business of, within their visibility fabric, running filters and only sending traffic that needs to be inspected off to devices that are going to do that inspection, which can help you with scale as well. Drew, what stood out to you in this section? What jumped out to me is that regardless of where you put your security controls, you're going to have to do what I call eat your vegetables. There are certain basic good habits that you just have to follow. That's check logs, run your scans, patch your vulnerabilities, monitor traffic. When it comes to security, there is no set it and forget it. Well, let's move the conversation ahead to analyzing of data, something we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, logging and looking at events and then in doing something with all of that data. And historically, I've dealt with logging infrastructure for firewalls where there could be very easily many millions of records per day, which is a lot of data to analyze. And I would rely on those firewall logs and maybe some IDS boxes to give me data, who's doing what bad things where. So if I don't have middle boxes now, how do I handle my my security data gathering? So I would assert that you handle your security <laughs> data gathering in the same way that you handle all the other data gathering, right? So you should have a centralized set of systems that's collecting network statistics, right? For your baselines and your logging. And you mentioned syslog. That's a really important tool in the toolbox there. Uh, and, and being able to query those quickly, I think, is is also an important thing. And I personally, I, John has a, a really good story to tell about this, but I personally like to use an indexing system like an Elk Stack or Splunk, and I can just throw everything into that. I throw the logs in it. I throw my flow data in it. Anything that's generated, I throw it in there, and then I cross-reference it with baselines. Yeah, I think it's really important for teams to engineer a, a good data ingest pipeline and ways that, to accept this data. Because if you make it easy to accept the data, then the people who have it, the different teams that want to send, send it, uh, if you, as long as you can make it easy on them, they're more willing to to send it across. And I totally agree, you know, indexing something in a, a Lucene-based uh, search index or search engine like Elasticsearch or Solar or sending things onto a Kafka topic and getting into a Hadoop ecosystem, you know, there's a lot of really good approaches, I think, to log this at uh, at really large scales, but also to make it easy for the people that are sending it. 
Okay, so you talked a little bit about where to put logs. How do we then extract value from it? Are there specific things we should be looking for? Uh, we're talking about potentially, as Ethan mentioned, millions of records. So how do we actually get actionable, useful insights? So I think one of the keys to doing that is handling the data as it comes in, doing some sort of streaming enrichment and saying, as the information comes in, let's compare it against threat intelligence feeds that I have. And I say, I know that this IP is bad to this degree. It is bad, you know, scale of one to 10 or or zero to a hundred, you know, and enrich the data with that information so that whenever you're looking at it later and you're, you're digging through it, you can kind of see what you knew at the time and what information that you have about, you know, whatever information you're ingesting, you know, what it says. But okay, so you say enrich the data. Um, okay, so you gave an example of IP addresses, right? Lots of threat databases out there that can rate IPs, so you know by reputation how likely that IP is to be screwing with you. How do you do that enrichment? I mean, it's not you with your eyes, you know, doing a cross comparison. Is there a software process that uh, does that enrichment for us? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different tools that allow you to do this. One that I'm very familiar with is an Apache project called Metron. Um, and the, the mechanism is essentially you send your information in a JSON format or really in whatever format you have to a Kafka topic. And then it goes through a pipeline of various different Hadoop ecosystem tools. So between Kafka and Storm primarily until it gets indexed. And uh, within Storm, there's essentially jars or you know Java code that runs and it does different comparison. It does cleaning of the data, enriching of the data. So it takes it, puts it in a unified format, you know, usually JSON, and then you know it looks up different keys in that and says, oh, okay, this is an IP address source. I know I have this list of IP sources, which could be bad. Uh, do a lookup, comparison, okay, you know, this is the information I have about it, add it into the uh, JSON, and then move it on to the next part of the step. And then actionable, if we want to take an action uh, based on the information that we've mined from the logs, what kind of actions are we talking about? We talk about humans taking an action, we talk about software reacting in some way, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what what's the logical step here? Humans out of the loop, or letting software with machine learning and artificial intelligence, latest buzzwords, yay, uh, go ahead and take all the actions for us. Yeah, I think it's a mix. I think that right now, based off what I know about machine learning, and I've been digging into it for a couple of years, based off what I know, you can't really just give it the reins and say, you know, go at it, tell me what's bad, but you can use it to assist. You can use machine learning to score and then have a manual person validate. So you shove it through a pipeline, it gets compared against some models, and it gives you different various scores. You could say, you know, anything above a 90 out of 100, that's automatically block that. Anything from a 50 to a 90, maybe we send that to a SOC and we actually put human eyes on it and everything, you know, 50 and under, you know, if you're bored or if you're doing threat hunting or specific engagement to look for bad things, that's when you would look at that data. But typically, you know, it's going to get a little bit more of a delayed response or a review. Yeah, there's definitely some some movement happening in doing those things. And we have a research project that's doing exactly that. It's applying machine learning techniques to networking and security data to, you know, see what we can figure out and, and eventually perform actions on if it, if it works out. But getting the data in one's place where that can happen, or at least available in a series of, of locations, is one of the biggest hurdles to, you know, to getting started with that. So, Nick, then just qualifying that, I mean, machine learning in your mind then is is actually real in this context. There's an application here to throw security-oriented data at machine learning algorithms and glean, at, well, as you put it, it was kind of vague, but like, well, something. We'll see what we can learn. I think this is one of the perfect applications for that. Not just security, but just network failures in general or network events. The ability to ingest all of these different kinds of data and then 
do some attended and unattended learning on them and then see what we can figure out. And then what, what can grow out of that is really, I think the next sort of phase in how we're going to handle these things is probably five plus years away at least, but, but work is happening right now to validate whether it's a reality or not. Yeah. And just to be clear, I, I totally agree. I think that machine learning can provide a lot of benefit. And one of the things that I like about the Apache Metron project is that it allows kind of a framework for you to bring your own models or develop models in it and then apply them in streaming as they go past. So you can kind of iterate on this and get to that point a couple of years from now where it's actually heavily useful. You know, I know plenty of people that have been using machine learning for years just as kind of uh, in that partial approach where the machine learning algorithm is looking at the data and giving it a score and then it's manually reviewed but now you're it's much easier for the human to do the review because first of all it's enriched so it has all the context around it that they would be manually looking for and you know has some sort of algorithm saying how to prioritize what they should be doing so this sounds like a theme that we're coming on it's it's never just set it and forget it even with machine learning you still want some kind of human feedback or human analysis to either educate or verify I mean, even with machine learning, it still has to be able to have the data sets to learn from as things change. So even that's not set. There's nothing about IT that's set it and forget it. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's actually a really cool uh, mechanism to introduce new models and have them replace existing ones called Challenger Champion. And you'll essentially have your current champion, which most of your traffic is kind of getting compared against because that's the model that's the be- that does the best for your situation right now. But then you can introduce these challengers and give them very small trickles of information. And as mm-hmm. they prove value, you bring them up higher and higher in the stack to, to see more traffic or to be more important in the decision-making process. And then eventually they can overtake the champion and become the most most important one. And that allows you to kind of ebb and flow and, and dynamically, you know, integrate new models to, to your pipeline. Moving on, Nick, earlier you mentioned graphing, want to see some graphical representation of what's going on. Are, are there tools you recommend? What kind of things should I be looking at? What, what's meaningful? So the, the tools that I like to use is, um, you know, for graphing things like interface statistics and stuff like that, you're not really Really, I've never done that in you know an indexing system. I like to use tools like LibreNMS. It's been my go-to uh, lately. It's an open source project. It tends to have very good support. The developers are really cool, and it supports more or less everything. It has lots of integrations. So I like to use that tool because I can go there and I can look at not just oh I see a big spike right here and now there's something going on, but I can also go and it's got an integration with like oxidizer rancid so I can see, go look at the config and see, oh, that's something changed here. And I can see that there's a config diff, right? So mm-hmm. I like that kind of tool. I also like to build dashboards in things like Splunk or Elasticstack. And um, there's a couple of good canned platforms that you can use to do that as well. Those are really flexible. And, and as far as like building out little dashboards that give you exactly what you want to see over time or creating alerts based on those things. LibreNMS, that's interesting. I'll, uh, I've been playing around with different open source network monitoring systems and, and don't like any of them so far, but that's one I w- had not come up on my radar. I'm going to poke around with that one, give it a shot. It sounds good. One last question, guys, to bring this to a close. We're out of time, but there's so many more things we could talk about. But one thing that I think is important here is streaming telemetry. We've talked about it a lot on this show because it's coming up from all parts of the IT stack, network infrastructure, as well as uh, software apps, they're all pushing telemetry data out now. How do we see telemetry impact the security field? I'm going to jump in because I have a pretty strong opinion about this. Imagine that. So (laughs) (laughs) 
as someone who has had a foot in both network architecture and security architecture for a long time, one of the things that I think that this really lends itself well to is intercommunication between teams. Because as John had alluded to earlier, like enriching the data that the security team is seeing gives you this wealth of extra stuff that you wouldn't see before. And having telemetry based on network events in real time can often be an early indicator of larger problems. For example, let's say you run a, you know, a big wide area network and you see a ramp up of traffic that might start to cause a piece of equipment in the path to behave oddly, right? In theory, streaming telemetry would give you that data right away. It could be a volumetric attack. You never know. And it could manifest itself early on in the process as a network problem rather than the service over here is going to start dying off. And having that streaming telemetry in there and available as a tool in the toolbox, I think, is only going to make detection of those things a lot faster. The idea that because rather than polling on a, a cyclic nature, you're getting data in real time. So as soon as streaming data comes in, as long as you're interpreting that data correctly, you may be able to react to an attack or predict that an attack is uh, imminent much more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we can kind of do this stuff now, but like you said, it's a pull, it's not a push. So there's a time element that I think will get smaller as this becomes more and more prevalent. Yeah, I think it's really important that we that we start to move things as close to real time as possible. And there's a lot of different techniques. You know, historically we've done things in batch. So you you run this job, you go pull information, and then you process it, and then you wait for the next batch of data to get dropped off, or for you to the cron job to hit to go get it. But you know, nowadays there's a lot of different architectures that have popped up. You know, you you might have heard the the term lambda architecture, uh, which is essentially you know the ability to split traffic and handle it in the in a way that does streaming and both streaming and batch. And then there's Kappa, which is a way to do both streaming and batch, but with a kind of a unified approach where, you know, it's a very native streaming approach, but then batch is handled essentially like a giant stream. You go back, rewind time and load this data through. So it's a really interesting field that I, that I've really been enjoying working with lately. And I think it's going to bring a lot of, you know, things that we used to do in batch to streaming into real time. And I think that's going to kind of really step things up for as far as, the ability to respond to attacks, to identify attacks in the first place. You know, in security, there's a lot of different metrics, but, you know, mean time to response uh, is a really big one that I think that streaming telemetry will will help us bring down and, and move faster. Hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of the Data Knots podcast for today. And let's go around the table and uh, find out where folks can follow you guys. Uh, Nick, you're, I know, active on social media and blog a bit. Just tell folks where they can find you. So I blog at forwardingplane.net, and I'm on Twitter at Baralio. And John, you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's John Ziola, John with no H, J-O-N. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well, and you can find me uh, my company website, CISO, LLC.com, S-E-I-S-O. Thanks for joining us today and for giving us a security without a firewall, a provocative thoughts. I have been redesigning in my mind what my network uh, that I, I deal with now would look like without a firewall. Not sure I can get there, <laughs> but this has been very provocative to think about. Um, but, you know, in big networks, the whole scale thing and, and throughput uh, when you start getting big pipes has really got me pondering that this isn't just, you know, something you do because you want to be contrarian. It's something that uh, it's going to be necessary in some cases. Anyway, that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. I am Ethan at EC Banks on Twitter. Drew is Drew underscore CM. 
And uh, you can find this and many of our other technical podcasts in our network over at PacketBushers.net. Chris Wall will be back next week. But in the meantime, follow him at Chris Wall and subscribe to his excellent nerdy blog, WallNetwork.com. Until then, may your server lights blink, your security do the right things for the right reasons, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank <laughs> you.